From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, May 18th. I'm Aaron Schachter. President Obama hosts the G8 summit this weekend, and the euro crisis will be high on the agenda. Also, Dominicans in New York get worked up about elections back home. In the Dominican Republic, when you belong to a party or you sympathize for a party, it's very inside of you. It's like football. Plus, the founder of a social network aimed at Nigerians living in China. I came to China kind of looking for American dream, you know. You must have read that on my profile, yeah. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. President Obama is hosting two big summits this weekend. First, he welcomes the leaders of the group of eight biggest industrialized nations to Camp David. Then it's off to Chicago for a NATO summit. For now, Obama's focus is on the G8 and the economic crisis in Europe. The president wants European leaders to do more to stimulate growth as opposed to austerity. He has a new partner on that front, the just-elected socialist president of France, François Hollande. Sylvain Courage is covering the summit for the French News Weekly, Le Nouvel Observateur. He was at the White House today for the first meeting between Hollande and Obama. He says it was a little difficult to read the tea leaves. The arrival of Mr. Uh, Hollande was uh, rather discreet, you know. He, didn't, uh, he was not welcomed uh, at the door or, or on the porch of the White House uh, uh, when uh, the French journalist uh, got to see them, they were already uh, seated in the Oval Office. And so um, we haven't really checked out how, how friendly the, the shake hands could, could be. But it seems that uh, their conversation has been very frank, very straight to the point and uh, friendly. Well, they, they uh, both said that uh, the feeling was good, uh, even if there has been some uh, disagreements on some points, uh, at least Mr. Hollande stated that. So, uh, well, I think it's uh, what, we, what is called in diplomatic uh, uh, language uh, uh, a constructive meeting. <laughs> now, now, you mentioned they kind of snuck the French president in through the back door. Yes, well, uh, we we uh, we didn't get a very convincing uh, uh, explanation for that, but uh, it seems that uh, Mr. Obama is running for the second time, and uh, he doesn't want to be uh, associated too closely to Mr. Hollande, even if he finds him very sympathetic. It it it, it doesn't want to be associated with a left-wing leader, a European left-wing leader like Mr. Hollande, because it's not very well uh, seen and perceived uh, by the American opinion uh, when you say that you're a socialist. Uh, here it, it has uh, another meaning and, uh, that, than uh, the one we, we generally understand in, uh, in France. And so I think that this label was a bit frightening for Mr. Uh, Obama. That's why 
maybe he wanted the, the meeting to be uh, uh, quite uh, discreet and, and uh, remote. Now, the main issue facing both of these presidents is the economy, of course. A- any news from today on how they intend to act, what France's expectation is of, of how the U.S. might help? Uh, well, they, they, they mentioned uh, economics, of course, as a, as a key uh, element of their discussion, especially the um, crisis in Greece, as you know, which is uh, going on at the very moment. And so they uh, um, were uh, very clear uh, to uh, state that Greece had to remain in the Eurozone. Uh, both of the presidents uh, said that. And they also agreed on the fact that uh, Europe should uh, try to to uh, find ways to increase growth in its uh, economies because we are suffering uh, not a recession but a a slowdown in the economies. And so uh, I think that President Obama backed um, Mr. Hollande's uh, effort to uh, find a, a growth project for Europe. Now, the question everyone wants to know, of course, aside from this uh, economic stuff, is do these two men get along? Will they be friends? I think, well, I, I didn't really hear your question very well, but yes, they get along all right, it seems. Uh, well, it's only their first meeting, but Mr. Holland said that there will be several other meetings in the days to come, and they seem to get along very well, and the, the, the relationship will be very different uh, compared to the one we we saw uh, developing between Mr. Obama and Mr. Sarkozy, the, the former French president, because Mr. Holland is is less um, uh, maybe uh, familiar than than Mr. Sarkozy, so it's going to be more formal. But uh, on the other hand, it might be more frank. It means that Mr. Holland will put on all the um, all the problems, all the the subjects on the table, and so this might be a good point for the cooperation between the two countries. Maybe the relationship will not be as familiar, but maybe it will be uh, uh, deeper. Sivan Courage of Le Nouvel Observateur in Washington, thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. Perhaps no one's watching Greece with as much worry as the Spanish. Spain's economy is in big trouble. It's got 25% unemployment and a crippled banking sector. Madrid's afraid that if Greece pulls out of the Eurozone, investors could lose faith in Spain as well. Spain's stock market has been volatile this week as its major banks got another bailout and a credit downgrade. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. One bank in particular is at the heart of this week's storm, Bankia. It's a merger of five smaller banks. It went public last year. Bankia was meant to symbolize a reinvigorated banking sector. This week, the government had to come to its rescue with $10 billion. The bailout, plus a rumor of a run on the bank, sent Bankia stock price plunging. Spain's Secretary of State for the Economy, Cristobal Montoro, went on TV to urge Spaniards not to panic. He said Bankia was solvent, as was the entire banking sector. Spanish banks are not going to suddenly freeze people's accounts, he said. The banks are not going to withhold your savings. Montoro's assurances didn't stop one woman from confronting him today outside his office in Madrid. The exchange was caught on TV. Banquilla isn't going under, is it? The distraught woman asked. No need to worry, Montoro said. If the bank goes down with my money, she said, I'll kill someone. 
Spanish banks have been in trouble for more than three years now. They were caught in a spectacular housing crash that left them with tens of billions of dollars in bad loans and defaults. Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy announced this week a fourth bank bailout worth some $30 billion in total. But at least one ratings agency, Moody's, sees the move as insufficient. Today, it downgraded 16 Spanish banks. On the eve of the G8 summit at Camp David, Prime Minister Rajoy said Spain has done all it can to help its banks. He demanded the European Union be ready to help if needed. The situation is very difficult and complicated, he told reporters. Our borrowing rates are soaring, and that means it's becoming very hard to finance the government. By EU, Rajoy was referring to Germany, by far the biggest payer into the European Central Bank. But German Chancellor Angela Merkel hasn't signaled any change in her position that budget cuts, not bailouts, are the way to heal Europe's weak economies. Meanwhile, Spaniards are getting nervous with the seemingly endless bad economic news. Gail Allard is an economist at the IE Business School in Madrid, nervous, she says, and disillusioned. When they came into the euro, the Spaniards were so proud to make it in, and I think it was like, okay, we've arrived. Now we're here, and this is the rest of our lives, right? There was never any questioning that this was a good thing for Spain and that this was a permanent thing for Spain. And um, to shake that up, it just puts cracks in the project that I don't know how you would repair them. Cracks in the faith of investors who lend Spain money, but also among Spaniards themselves, says economist Pablo Triana. He says a Greek exit from the euro might tip the balance here. I think there are a lot of people in Spain who could be emboldened if Greece were to exit. These people would be emboldened to demand similar action. In other words, voters here might follow Greece's lead, electing leaders willing to oppose austerity measures, even if that means returning to the peseta. Or people might make a real run on their banks. Shares in Bankia, by the way, rebounded today after rumors of a run on it were dispelled. But the plunge was an indication of how jittery investors are. In the U.S., officials and some economists have been urging Europe to spend its way out of the crisis, stimulate the economy rather than strangle it, goes to thinking, because you can only pay debt off if your economy is growing. That's likely to be part of the message President Obama gives to visiting European heads of state at the Camp David summit. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Cartoonists have also been pondering a possible Greek exit from the Eurozone. See what they've come up with from belt-tightened togas to crumbling Greek ruins. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Italy is also watching what's happening in Greece with concern, but the country has other worries as well. One of them is illegal garbage dumping by the mafia. Authorities are now testing a small, remotely piloted aircraft as a tool to fight environmental crimes in the Naples area. Reporter Angelica Marin recently caught up with the scientist who designed the drone. Riding through marshes at dawn, environmental engineer Massimiliano Lega is careful not to disturb the ground. Fumes escape from cracks in the earth. There's a choking stench of gas, bleach, and burnt tires. This is the Naples countryside. Two truckloads of poisonous junk are buried here, just below Lega's sneakers. He says the Camorra Mafia is to blame. The buried trash creates a chemical reaction over time that produces toxins. Lega points his thermal camera at any smoking groove as guard dogs bark from a distance. Lega is testing his latest creation. It's called Stillfly, a three-wing, five-pound drone that flies just feet above the ground. 
The drone's heat-sensing camera and gas sensors transmit data to a monitoring station, where Lega studies the images. All the sensors were designed to work like a small, portable lab. It's like what forensic police would use to process the scene of a crime, like a murder, but readapted for an environmental crime. Stillfly is now being tested to zero in on riverbeds, farmlands, and even industrial sites, says forest ranger Marco Di Fonso. He says this kind of technology could be much more economical and effective than doing surveillance in a helicopter. Environmental surveillance in this region typically leads to organized crime. No one knows this better than Donato Celie. He's a prosecutor who's been investigating mafia environmental crime since the late 1990s. For the Camorra, waste and trash are more profitable than oil. Celia says Italian companies from the north contract with the Camorra to dump their waste in the Naples countryside, cutting their disposal costs by up to 90 percent. Celia says Stillfly can provide the evidence to nail eco-criminals in court. With a drone, you can detect the source of pollution, the route, and the effects of that pollution. It's very solid evidence that holds up in court. Stillfly has already helped send a few polluters to trial, like a farmer accused of channeling buffalo waste into a river, and a mozzarella maker who allegedly dumped tanks of waybrine. The unmanned aircraft also spotted a cargo ship rinsing out its tanks in the Gulf of Naples by night. And now, the discovery of the two trucks buried in the polluted countryside has triggered a new investigation. Lega hopes authorities throughout Italy may soon be tracking environmental crimes with his drone. For the world, I'm Angelica Marin, Naples. Next week, we travel to several countries for our series on class and social mobility around the globe. From Ukraine, we'll hear how members of the middle class became involved in the country's orange revolution. Suddenly, everybody understood that it's the moment that you can decide and you have to take part. We'll also visit Britain, India, China and Egypt. And we'll have daily online crossword puzzles. Get in on the action by texting the word CLASS to 69866. Message and data rates apply. And this is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. About 1.4 million Dominicans live in the United States, and about half of them live in New York City. They've been a significant political force in the area, but in recent years they've been flexing their political muscle back home in the Dominican Republic. That's especially true this weekend. Bruce Wallace reports from Washington Heights, the hub of Dominican life in the city. This campaign office on 159th in Amsterdam is a typical one. People huddle and talk about fundraising numbers and voter lists. There's a call center and a TV crew setting up for an interview and a bunch of posters piled in a corner. But the people gathered in the third-story office aren't talking about Obama or Romney. They're talking about Medina, and they're doing it in Spanish. Danilo Medina is one of the two leading presidential candidates in the Dominican Republic. The other is Hippolito Mejia. Election day is Sunday, and the race is tight. But it's exciting because if you go around, everybody campaigning, everybody, everybody. That's Frank Cortorreal. He's the head of the Medina campaign for New York State. This is the third time Dominicans living abroad have been able to vote in presidential elections back home. Both major parties now have permanent offices in New York. Dominicans abroad make up about 5% of the country's total registered voters, and they could play a decisive role in this race. The candidates have noticed. Both have been making regular visits since the fall, 
meeting with interest groups, raising money, and taking their message to the streets of Washington Heights. And it's not just the presidential race that's grabbed attention. These are supporters at a rally for a vice presidential candidate, Margarita Cedeno. She's the current first lady. Ramona Hernandez directs the Dominican Studies Institute at the City College of New York. According to all the surveys, political surveys in the Dominican Republic, she is the most value candidate. This is amazing to me. Hernandez says women are becoming an increasing power in Dominican electoral politics, especially among Dominicans living abroad, where women make up the majority. The main message in this campaign will probably sound familiar. The Dominican Republic is going to have a change. We need somebody who change the country. Yep, this election is about change. Medina's party has been in power for eight years, and supporters of the other candidate, Hippolito Mejia, say the party has been bad for the country. A lot of drugs, a lot of delinquencies, and the food, the prices are up. They never go down. They're always up, 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 up. Madeline Martin sits with a group of other Mejia supporters around a card table loaded with campaign literature. She thinks her candidate will make her country safer and the government less corrupt. But opponents point out that Mejia is not the face of change. Frank Cortoreal again. He was president in 2000, 2004, and he was a disaster. The number of New York's Dominican voters has doubled since the last election in 2008. But Cortoreal says it's getting tougher to reach out to them. They're becoming less concentrated in northern Manhattan. Gentrification is pushing them out. And Ramona Hernandez says it's an open question whether New York Dominicans will stay involved in the politics of their homeland. She says it's the first generation that's most active. It's really connected to Dominican immigrants. The second generation Dominicans, or those who were born and raised in the U.S., uh, studies show that they pay very little attention to politics in the Dominican Republic. Still, Corto Real says that political sentiment among Dominicans runs deep. In the Dominican Republic, when you belong to a party or you sympathize for a party, it's very inside of you. It's like football. You know, it's something personal. Fanatic. And if the latest polls are right, Sunday's match will be a nail-biter. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace, Washington Heights. One of the musical greats of the Arab world has passed away. She was known simply as Warda, though some called her Warda al-Jazairia, which means the Algerian rose. She was born in France to an Algerian father and Lebanese mother, but she lived most of her life in Cairo, Egypt. And that's where Warda died yesterday. Zayn al-Jundi is a Syrian singer and dancer currently living in Austin, Texas. She says Warda was one of the biggest stars to emerge in the heyday of Arab music in the 1960s and 70s. She was one of the biggest. I mean, at the time, there was very few names that were just humongous. Uh, Um Kulthum, Abdul Halim. And Warda was the youngest and the last edition of the breed of singers. Everybody knew her songs. Whether they listened to them, loved them or not, everybody knew of Warda. And of course, everybody who was anybody in the Arabic music industry, composed for her. You're a singer yourself. Is her type of singing something you aspired to while you were growing up, becoming a singer? Yes and no. Yes, when I became aware of how amazing her vocal capacity is and what an absolutely beautiful singer who's unparalleled, really, in terms of the feeling in which she sang 
No, because when I was much younger, it was sort of almost like the old-fashioned stuff that cool young people are not supposed to be into. But funny enough, I loved her songs. Well, you know what's amazing, of course, is you go to a club or a restaurant in in the Middle East and, and this music comes on and all the young people go crazy. Well, unfortunately, it's, it's remakes of these songs that cater to the more poppy sound. Uh, but if you put like the original song of Warda, it's still in the more acoustic, traditional arrangement of music. And that's more for listening, not so much dancing. However, you go to a concert. I mean, Warda performed up till just recently because she was out of the scene for a long time and then she came back and even though her voice was not the same she did come back to performing and singing and her concerts were just I mean you watch the audience it's madness because everybody is up on their feet everybody is singing to every single word and just loving every minute of it so the songs are eternal and Zane when you heard the news that um that Warda had died What did you think about that? How did you feel? I was actually very taken aback by how sad I felt. Um, You know, I sat down and thought about it, and I thought, why do I feel such sadness? I think part of that is the fact that Warda represented so much of my growing up years in Syria. Everything about growing up in Syria was somehow associated with a song of Wedas that had just come out. And every song, I could see myself a young teenager in Syria. And something about that relationship made her the news of her death a lot more difficult to take. Zain Al-Jundi is a singer and dancer from Syria. She currently lives in Austin, Texas. We've got samples of Zane's own work at theworld.org from her latest recording, Sharafuni, and we'll go out with a song from the late Warda, one of her massive hits called Betwanas Bik, or roughly translated, I Feel Safe With You. Zane Al-Jundi, thank you so much for speaking with us about Warda. My pleasure. Thank you. Betwanas This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, ahead on the world why Russians don't use Facebook. And later, Gaelic music from Scotland gets a punk rock makeover. We want to say, look, you don't have to just sing about crofting and sheep and your grandfather's old days. You can sing songs about going down the pub and drinking with your mates. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Facebook has finally gone public. Trading began today in shares of the social networking behemoth. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg rang the opening Nasdaq bell, surrounded by a cheering crowd at his company's headquarters in California. The initial share price put Facebook's value at more than $100 billion. One man, besides Zuckerberg, who is likely to be celebrating is Russian businessman Alisher Usmanov. Three years ago, he and his business associates bought almost 10% of Facebook. They invested $900 million, which at today's IPO price would be worth somewhere around $6 billion. Karina Alexanian is with Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. We asked her to describe Usmanov for us. He is a industrial magnate in Russia, and he and Yuri Milner, who works with Digital Sky Technologies, have invested a lot in Silicon Valley. In fact, you can be said that the Russian investment really helped fuel the resurgence of Silicon Valley here in the past couple of years. In particular, they have been aware of the value of social media because social media has a strong history in Russia. But uh, Facebook isn't very popular there, though, is it? No, Facebook isn't popular in Russia yet. Um, They actually didn't go into Russia until 2010. But uh, Russians have been using social media and social networking for a long time. Um, Social media appeared in Russia around 2000 with LiveJournal, which is sort of a blogging platform that combines the features of blogs and social networks. What it did is that it allowed social media to develop in terms of the long-form journals entries of blogs and the kind of in-depth content and as well the interpersonal connections afforded through social networking. And it established a community of people who were active in public discourse in Russia, but also were familiar with social networks. And that came on the scene in 2000, which is around the time that the internet appeared in Russia. And so the internet and social media in Russia has really evolved hand in hand from the outset. And how open are, are the social networks in Russia? I mean, certainly if, if we look on the streets these days, it looks like uh, free speech is being clamped down on. Is that true online as well? Well, what happens in Russia is that there's a distinction between traditional media and online media. So television is very government controlled and the majority of the populace in Russia is, is getting its information from television. But online media are very free. Uh, It can be said that that was the case because they're sort of marginalized. But as they grow in popularity, I don't know, it's unclear how free they will remain. But for the time being, being, they are very free and people can pretty much say whatever they want in terms of discourse and in terms of organizing online. It's sort of amazing to us here in America that the government hasn't cracked down and that things are so open. Uh, Why is that, do you think? I think that um, part of it has... You know, I can't predict for the future. Um, There's been a couple of theories. One of them is that the penetration of the Internet is not nearly as large in Russia as it is in the U.S. It's only about 50 percent penetration, and it's really focused still on uh, sort of an urban elite. And so the government may feel that the people who are online are a marginalized group or just sort of a separate group. Can you get online on your phone in Russia? Yes. Oh, yes. Mobile okay. Internet use is very, very popular. In fact, and, and you could say it's more popular than just ordinary computer Internet use. But 
the main thing is that what you have in Russia are kind of like two audiences. You have the television watchers and the internet users. And uh, whereas in the U.S. everyone is watching TV also, they're getting their information from TV, but they're also getting their information from a variety of sources. The media environment in the U.S. is very rich. Whereas in Russia, what you have are people who, uh, a large majority of the populace that is really only getting their information off of television, which is state controlled, and then sort of a smaller group that is also getting the information off the internet and connecting and sharing the internet. And so as that group grows, you may see more government involvement. But for the time being, that is a very vocal, very active, very engaged and elite group, but still a small group. And in addition, another theory is that the government allows the internet to be sort of like a release valve or a pressure valve where people are able to get their frustration out online and uh, as a result may be less likely to act offline, although that hasn't really worked. (laughs) (laughs) Karina Alexanian is currently a consultant working on global social media in Silicon Valley. Karina, thank you so much. Thank you. Back in 2004, when Mark Zuckerberg was launching Facebook from his college dorm room, a Nigerian immigrant living in China dreamed about starting his own social network. Well, he's done it, though not quite on Facebook's scale. Nina Porzuki has this profile. Meet Spartan Renze. When he landed at the Guangzhou airport in southern China more than a decade ago, he had $300 in his pocket and he didn't speak a word of Chinese. But he felt destined to do something big. I came to China with the hope of a kind of looking for American dream, you know. You must have read that on my profile, yeah. The online profile he's talking about is on gabuza.com, the site Arenze launched two years ago. As for that dream, well, gabuza.com is it. Some people, their dream, business. Some people, their dream was soccer. My dream was media. The connection between Nigeria and China is built upon trade. Arenze remembers watching as more and more Chinese goods flooded the marketplace near his home in Nigeria's Anambra state. At the time, visas to China were relatively easy for Nigerians to get. So Arenze decided to take his chances and go to the source of all those goods, where he hoped to make enough money to start his own social networking site. The answer I mean, that was the biggest risk I ever taken in my life. He spent the first few years in Guangzhou doing whatever odd job would keep him there, teaching English, exporting purses to Nigeria, all the while researching and planning for the launch of his own social network. He studied sites like Facebook and Yahoo. They weren't quite like the site that he hoped to create. But then one day he was searching the Internet. And uh, accidentally I came about this website, HuffPost, Huffington Post, yeah. Oh, yeah. HuffPost. Uh, I say, wow. This looks like my website. (laughs) Gabuza launched in 2010. The name Gabuza, like Yahoo, ends with an exclamation point. It's a Nigerian expression meaning surprise or astonishment. It can mean uh, a bang, explosion, something like that. Buzza. Buzza. Excitement, surprise. The site is part social network, part news aggregate, and very focused on the Nigerian community in China. I cannot create a news website for Americans, you know. I'm from Nigeria, you know, so I have to create something for my people. And uh, being in China here, I want to create something that will benefit my people and benefit China with official Chinese news and um, official event of Nigerians in China, too. Gabuza is no Facebook yet. 
The site has about 2,000 members and gets around 5,000 page hits a day. But Arenze is still dreaming big. His next plan? Making Gabuza.com the number one social news network in Africa. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki. North Africa's in our sights for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the largest city in Libya. It's a major coastal oasis. The city is divided into new and old quarters. The old quarter is home to the marble Marcus Aurelius Triumphal Arch. You can also find the royal palace that belonged to the late dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Before Gaddafi was ousted last year, he was feared for his iron-fisted rule. One of his more unusual decrees was banning the sport of fencing. Now that he's gone, the sport's coming back. So can you name the city that's enjoying a fencing renaissance in post-Gaddafi Libya? Stay tuned. The violence in Syria spilled over into Lebanon earlier this week. There were clashes in northern Lebanon between Alawites and Sunni Muslims. The Alawites are members of the same ethnic group as Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. But sectarian clashes have long been a part of history in Lebanon, both ancient and modern. And they play a part in a movie by a Lebanese filmmaker that's out in the U.S. now. Ben Gilbert has more. Nadine Labaki grew up during Lebanon's 15-year civil war. She says the experience played a key role in becoming a filmmaker. She lived above a video store and had to walk through a sandbagged entrance to get to it. For me, it was my escape to the outside world where I could rent films that came from anywhere, everywhere. And I think when, you know, you discover the way to create these worlds that have nothing to do with your own world or with your own routine was to do it through becoming a filmmaker, I decided to become one very early. Labaki's childhood experiences and Lebanon's experience with war are brought out in her new film, Where Do We Go Now? The fantastical and sometimes musical film tells the tale of an isolated mountain village where Christians and Muslims live together peacefully, although a war between the two sects rages elsewhere in the country. The war is never seen, but looms just beyond the horizon. The village, though, isn't untouched by past conflicts. graveyard in the opening scene, the village women, dressed in black, beating their chests, clean the headstones of their fathers, sons, and brothers killed in years past, though now it appears that all is calm. Until the village gets its first satellite dish, and that link with the outside world brings news of Muslim and Christian clashes. Tensions are inflamed when the village imam finds animals in the mosque. His congregation feels insulted and blames the Christians. One man smashes the Virgin Mary with a stick. The men then rally around their respective religions. Meanwhile, the women of the village, both Christian and Muslim, work anxiously to find out a way to keep their men from killing each other again. They sabotage the satellite TV and stage a fake miracle. But after blood is put into the holy water and Muslims' shoes are stolen during prayer, the men begin fighting in the village coffee shop. In the film's first powerful scene, Labaki's character, Mary Jane, tries to stop the violence. 
Stop it. It's enough, she screams. Have you learned nothing? Haven't we suffered enough? You act as if we were born to wear black and to mourn you. Is this what being a man means, she asks? The speech ends the fighting for a time. The women eventually go to extremes to halt the escalation. They bring in a troop of Russian prostitutes and drug the village men with marijuana pastries. There's also a song about how the hashish will keep their men alive. Brown or yellow, it doesn't matter. Worth its weight in gold, they sing. This hashish comes from my heart. My man is drowning. Throw him a lifesaver. But the drug-induced feelings of goodwill are temporary. The men begin plotting to dig up hidden weapons, and the women have had enough. In a final desperate act, they convert to one another's religions. The Christian women become Muslim. The Muslim women become Christian. One of the men wakes up to find his formerly Christian mother in a Muslim headscarf. Labaki says the film isn't meant to be taken literally, but it does have roots in reality. She got the idea for the film when clashes broke out in Beirut in 2008. Beirut became a war zone over hours. And I saw people that belonged to different political parties, but also to different religions, become enemies again. And I'd seen them succeed in living together, you know, in the same neighborhood, breathing the same air. And these events proved to me that uh, anything can become a reason for us to take weapons again and to start killing each other again. Trapped in her apartment by the fighting, Labaki and one of her co-writers imagined a woman trying to keep her son from leaving the house to go fight. She had found out she was pregnant a few days before. Labaki says the scene where she tells the men she has had enough was actually her speaking. It's something she's wanted to say for a long time. I've had enough seeing mothers cry, and I wonder where do they find the strength to keep living. And yes, I wanted this to be like a cry for help, you know, because how can we make ourselves heard? I don't know if I succeeded or not, but this was my intention. The power and simplicity of Labaki's message made it perhaps one of the greatest cinematic releases in Lebanon in years. Screenings were sold out across the country. Audiences in the U.S. may not pick up on the Lebanese jokes, but they will identify with the universal message of mothers having had enough of violence. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert in Beirut. Now, congratulations to our GeoQuiz texting game winners, Tara from North Berwick, Maine, Drake from Meridianville, Alabama, and Mark from Escondido, California. They all knew the answer is Tripoli. It's the city where fencing is making a comeback. This is Adele Al-Zaitoni, head of Libya's newly formed Fencing Federation. He says Libya's former leader of four decades, Muammar Gaddafi, thought fencing was too violent, along with wrestling, boxing, and martial arts. Now those dangerous sports are back. Under Gaddafi's rule, athletes and officials in sports the colonel did allow put up with lots of state meddling as well as corruption, restrictions on travel, and chronic underfunding. That's according to the head of Libya's National Olympic Committee. He says Gaddafi didn't like sports stars because he thought they would draw the spotlight away from him. For a time, even soccer players could only be referred to on television by their number. If you want to play the GeoQuiz texting game, just text GeoQuiz to 69866. Standard message rates apply. This is PRI.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Antiques Roadshow, with family heirlooms, yard sale bargains, and long-lost items salvaged from attics and basements. Experts reveal the fascinating stories behind these hidden treasures, Mondays at 8, 7 Central, on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Some American chefs have been in Cuba this past week cooking alongside some budding Cuban restaurateurs. The trip was inspired by the growing number of private eateries in Cuba. That's the result of the Cuban government's recent opening to allow more private businesses. One of the Americans taking part is Sarah Jenkins. She explains how the exchange came together. The Havana Biennale was coming up, and there was a gallery, a Cuban art dealer here in New York, who was interested in sort of sponsoring it, putting it up as his presentation, and so that's how it came together. He started traveling down there, and we started trying to figure out how we would do it and how it would happen. And amazingly enough, it did happen. So it's a sort of uh, kitchen diplomacy. Kitchen diplomacy, exactly. One of the the things that is changing in Cuba is the creation of these private restaurants, right? These These small little eateries uh, yeah. called paladars. Some of them have gotten pretty elaborate. We went into some very elegant homes, some of which even have bars in a room in them. One of the women I was with said, well, this isn't a paladar. This isn't somebody. And I said, well, it is technically. It's not a government-run restaurant. But they're pretty They're pretty exciting. And, and what did you learn there about Cuban food? I mean, Cuban food here is quite spectacular, and certainly uh, everyone loves their mojitos. Um, well, there are plenty of mojitos in Havana. Uh, the food ranges from god-awful to intriguing and interesting. And, you know, most of the good food that you eat is in the Paladars. Everything else is sort of government-run and government-sourced. And I think it's probably much like I imagine Moscow was in 1981. When you were down there, did you get the impression that there was a Cuban cuisine of the past that is being reinvented? Or are these Paladars creating a new Cuban cuisine? I think the Paladars are creating a new Cuban cuisine. I was only able to eat at three of them. And none of them, I mean, I believe there are ones that are doing sort of traditional Cuban cuisine. And obviously there was a lot of elements to Cuban cuisine there, but they weren't necessarily being tied to it at all. You brought a lot of food down. You and your chefs brought a lot of food down that that people in Cuba had never seen, heard of, tasted before. And and I guess the reverse was true, right? You got to experience some, especially vegetables, right, that you'd never seen before. Yeah, it was very exciting. We found a farm about 15 minutes outside of Havana, which is a, it's a group of farmers, a cooperative, I suppose. And they were growing some pretty fabulous produce. There were things there I got very excited about. They had a mango tree with green mangoes on it. So I immediately decided, even though I'm an Italian chef, I wanted to make Asian-style green mango salad. And they had a plant there, a tree that put out a leafy green that was called morimba or moringa. And everybody was at the farm was terribly excited about it. It's got very, very high nutritional value, and it's originally indigenous to Africa. In fact, one of the chefs we came down with, Pierre Thiam from Senegal, immediately knew what it was. And that was terrifically exciting. Is there a recipe that you learned down in Cuba that you'd want to share that you might make in, in one of your restaurants? 
we did one night, we did a sort of uh, test run, and we got two small suckling pigs. So it was sort of like, let's cut these pigs up and get them in the oven slow roasting. And we just threw them in on a bed of rosemary and garlic and sprinkled salt over them and slow roasted them for about eight hours. And that was that was pretty awesome. New York chef and restaurateur Sarah Jenkins runs Porchetta and Porcena in New York City. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We have Sarah Jenkins' original Italian recipe for slow-roasted pork at theworld.org. Finally today, a little Gallic punk. The Scottish band Oi Polloi recently released their second album of original songs in Gallic. Maria Bacalopolo recently met up with the band. Does anyone here, does anyone here like whiskey? That was the correct answer. Oi Polloi has been around since the early years of punk in Scotland. The end of this song is going to be some free whiskey for the punks. Dick Allen played his first gigs at 15, though the music didn't sound quite like this. Too young to enter pubs, he and his band were booked to play at kids' fashion shows and youth clubs. Dick was also playing bagpipes in the school pipe band, and a lot of the names of the tunes were in Gaelic. Dick decided he wanted to learn it. I'd always wanted to learn Gaelic when I was at school. But unfortunately, back then in the 80s, it wasn't an option. And this is even in the capital city of Scotland, at a so-called good school. It wasn't possible to learn the native language of the, of the country. Speaking Gaelic was frowned upon and discouraged up until the 1970s. You'd be beaten if you were heard speaking Gaelic in the playground or something. And some places even had really sort of macabre way of doing things where a human skull would be hung round the neck of some child who was caught speaking Gaelic. Simmering resentment led Deke to go Gallic, as it were, and in 1996, Oi Polloi released their first all-Gallic EP. Many times it's presented almost like some kind of museum piece. We want to say, look, you don't have to just sing about crofting and sheep and your grandfather's old days. You can sing songs about going down the pub and drinking with your mates or whatever, and it is a living language, and that's the way we want to present it. We also want to try and make it a bit more cool. Dare I say it, sexy. But not everyone is enamored by Gaelic. Outside Oi Polloi's live show, Gibby from the group Overspill says he's indifferent to the language. Don't understand a word of it. To be honest, Gaelic doesn't really affect me in the 21st century. I don't see the importance of it. The relevance, I should say, no one I know speaks it apart from Deke. So, <laughs> so anyway, but before we play this, we're going to burn the Union Jack. The members of Oi Polloi are politically active and can even be found burning flags at their shows, though in a somewhat ironic style. Deke stops by his local bakery to pick up decorative flags on toothpicks, Union Jacks and Stars and Stripes, which he burns on stage with a cigarette lighter. The Scottish National Party, currently in power, is pushing for a referendum returning Scotland's independence after 300 years in the United Kingdom. I think it's about time that we've got this referendum at last and it will be an absolute tragedy if we do not get independence. We think it's absolutely crazy that Scotland is run from London. The idea that you know people in London know what's best for Scotland. Their new album is out now. It's called Douche. Gallic for Rise. 
Deke says by presenting Gaelic in a punk format, it's reaching people who might not otherwise hear their language. And he claims it's catching on. Actually, on our next record, we've got a song in Latin. So we can say, look, that is a song in a dead language. Unless you work in the Vatican or something. You know, this is Gaelic. This is a living language. For the world, I'm Maria Bacalopolo in Edinburgh, Scotland. You can see a video of Oi Polloi in Edinburgh at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed our theme music. From the Nan and Bill Harris studio in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media.